Hello everyone and welcome to the second video in the Monkey Puzzle teacher training course that's presented by me, Rory Fergus Duncan Goodwillie. Um, I'm one of the teacher trainers on this course and this is, like I say, the second video that we've created uh, showcasing some of the content that we have on the course. So last time we talked about uh, missing links in while teaching and some preparation courses and this time we're going to look at actual lesson planning and this will be the first of two videos that focus on lesson planning for young learners. Uh, the first thing that we're going to do is look at the actual parts of a lesson plan for young learners. There are some aspects that are um, well specifically for young learners and there are other parts that are uh, generally applicable to lesson plans everywhere. So let's get started. Um, the very first thing that we need to look at is, um, well, the outline of the actual presentation itself. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to just look at the young part, the main parts of a young learner's lesson plan. And then we'll highlight potential areas of difficulty and interest that aren't considered usually in lesson planning for young learners. And then a side aim will be um, providing some tips for making it more efficient and effective. Why bother with the plan? Why bother indeed? Well, first of all, most teachers are observed either on teacher training courses or in the schools that they work in. And it's a good way of getting representations of thoughts. And this is also a good way of providing a structure for the feedback that you might get from anyone who observes you. And the other thing is, um, it's good um, to have a set of achievable goals with a logical way of achieving them. And this helps us measure the success of our lessons more independently, I suppose. So you can look back on your plan and see uh, which parts went right and which parts had problems. And then you can use it to improve for the future. Your plans don't need to have a huge amount of detail. We're going to go into a lot of detail here. But if you want to just write something on a small piece of paper, just a logical sequence of activities, and this is also quite useful for any development that you might want to make. And it can serve as a useful reminder in your head of what you want to achieve in the lesson itself. So the first thing we always have in a lesson plan is the aims. What do we want to achieve in the lesson? What's the point? There are different kinds of aims. Um, the first kind are the main aims. Now, um, the well, there are two, two kinds of main aims here. There are language and skills aims. Language aims are connected to the grammar, the vocabulary, or the pronunciation you've selected for a particular lesson. The skills aims are reading, writing, speaking, or listening, whatever you want to develop in terms of their skills over the course of the lesson. Sub-aims are things that are achieved along the way to achieving the main aims. So they are also about language and skills, the same ones that we just talked about, but to a lesser extent, it could be what vocabulary is needed in order to uh, discuss or in order to use or access or develop the skill that's being used in the course of the lesson. <clears throat> Third kind are personal aims. Uh, these are less about language and they're more about what teachers need to work on during the course of their lesson. It could be, especially in the context of young learners, it could be classroom management, or it could be monitoring, making sure that students are monitored effectively and you have appropriate materials on standby to provide them with as they start to finish faster than others or as they start to have more nuanced needs in this sense. Now, you'll notice that there's an asterisk at the end of sub-aims and main aims because there's an important thing to consider, especially in young learners classes, and that is um, whether we should structure our aims by ability. So for example, some students in the class, especially for very young students, might be able to write and some of them might not be able to write. So in this sense, 
students being able to just say the word might be enough of an aim for some of them, whereas asking students to have written the word in full sentence might be a more realistic aim for others. So you might want to consider this in your lesson plans for young learners as well. Maybe having different aims for different students will be a better idea than having blanket aims for the entire class. This will come as you start to know the students and their abilities uh, in greater depth, but it is something that does come up, especially in observations. A lot of teachers don't meet their objectives, not because uh, they weren't trying, but because they didn't think about how achievable they were for the actual students in the class or some of the students in the class. Everybody is at different stages in their English language journey, and this is something that needs to be borne in mind as well. And also, we need to think about how to phrase our aims. So we can do this in a variety of ways. Most teachers are using the communicative approach. So generally speaking, we'll probably have something that looks like this substitution table. Um, and here, they always start in the same way. By the end of the lesson, and then the people involved, the students in this case, um, will have learned. Now, we could say will have learned, but it could be will have practiced, will have been exposed to, uh, will, have, uh, will have studied. And um, so there are lots of different verbs that can be used here. I like to say will have practiced because um, they do practice language in a lesson to some extent or another. Um, and that means it's um, more accurate than just saying will have learned. And then we focus on the specific aspect, uh, language or skill. Here it's present perfect for past experiences. And there's the communicative end to match the communicative approach. Here they do these things in order to discuss past holidays and travel experiences in this sense. And you can do the same thing with your sub aims and with your personal aims as well. By the end of the lesson, I will have uh, been able to effectively distribute the um, materials by having it next to the table. And this is just a sort of reminder for ourselves as well as anyone observing us, what we plan to focus on for ourselves in the lesson too. It can be something as simple as that. It can be something more complex, like remembering to encourage the students to produce full sentences. You need to think how you're going to do that as well. However we phrase our aims, there are always some questions about them. The first thing teachers wonder is how many aims should we have? So really the ideal answer in this scenario is two for main aims, um, a language aim and a skills aim. This is because, well, most of the time, the students are learning the specific aspect of the language in order to be able to use it as part of a skill, or they're using their skill in order to be able to access part of the language. It doesn't matter which way it comes. This is just a logical way of doing things. Um, there are other logical ways of doing things though. You could have one aim per student. So by the end of the lesson, Yaroslav will have produced this kind of work, whereas by the end of the lesson, Erica will have produced this kind of work based on their ability. And the other thing is, is this the same process for sub-aims and personal aims? Well, again, um, for sub-aims, you would have like an aim for um, language and um, for skills as well. And then in the sense of personal aims, uh, two or three might be enough for yourself. However, it's important to point out, this is just the average, some teachers are just beginning their careers, and so they might want to focus on just one thing per lesson, and that's absolutely fine as well. But however you have them, you should make sure that they are clear and achievable so that the person observing you is able to understand what's going on, and also so that you have a clear idea of what you want by the end of the lesson too. If you don't meet your aims, then you might not be entirely satisfied, and you need to think, how should I adjust these in order to feel more satisfied about how things went the next time? So let's say we have our aims. 
And then we have to worry about the stages. Now, the stages are just the parts of the lesson that you need to meet your aims, and they should be connected in the logical order. This is particularly important for young learners because they need to see a logical sequence, a logical progression of one thing to the next, so they can anchor their current experience in what's gone before. The same thing is true uh, in terms of revising material. It's important to revise what's come before and connect this to present material so the students can have a logical sequence of events in their heads and therefore they can access it more easily and deploy it more readily. In the you cannot justify your staging of activities as how it is in the book. The reason for this is you the books are designed for a general audience, but you are teaching a specific audience of young learners. So you need to think about this very carefully. In most course books, there is no space for revision activities, for example. But revision is absolutely crucial for young learners because their memories are very short and they forget things. So they need the opportunities to revise. A revision is a key stage in every young learner's life, regardless of the age group. As is the logical sequencing. But how will this actually look? So we can take a generic lesson. Usually at the beginning of the class, there's the hello stage and the names. So just saying hello and maybe putting their names on the board as part of your system of rewards and consequences. We talked about this in the previous video. So it's important to have this at the very beginning to establish that aspect of things, but also just welcoming them. If you have older students as well, using their names and it's a helpful reminder for the teacher as well as part of your overall classroom management and finding out about how their day went, um, different aspects of the other classes they have, perhaps they didn't have such a good day, and then that will influence what you're going to do in the lesson as well. You might want to start with the game to pull them up, for example. But you definitely want to start off by saying hello. You might even have a song for them. Who knows? Then there's usually the revision stage. So from hello, you can say, oh, okay, what, what did we talk about last time? Does anyone remember? And then you can start getting ideas from them. Um, and then you can start to build up a picture of exactly what they can remember. And then you might want to play a game with flashcards based on the vocabulary from the previous lesson or based on the grammar from that lesson. Um, however you decide to do it, it's not really important. It just must be done in order for their memories to be consolidated in the previous lesson. Then usually you'll have your new vocabulary or your new grammar or your new subject matter, whatever it is. I've said vocabulary here, but it could be anything. What's important here is that there's a connection from the revision to the new vocabulary. We'll look at how this is done in more detail later on, but there should be some logical connection between the past and the present so that there's the sense of continuity from one thing to the other. And then once you've exposed them to the new vocabulary, it could be with flashcards, then you've got to practice this vocabulary. This could be with a flashcard game or it could be with a handwriting worksheet. We looked at those in greater detail in the previous video, um, but it can be something as simple as that. It could be a gap filling exercise for teenagers, um, so, but something that's tailored to the level and age of the students themselves. After that, they've practiced the language that you've taught them, so they'll probably want to use that in a productive task just to make sure that they can use it independently. However, young learners always need a model of whatever it is that they're expected to produce. So it's good ideas as a teacher to have your own model prepared beforehand. For example, if they're studying sea creatures and they need to post, uh, produce a poster about a sea creature, then the teacher should have a poster of a sea creature that they made themselves so the students can see what is expected of them. What should their final task look like? And of course, the students should be orientated to the model of the productive task. So they have a chance to ask questions about the model. Can I use colors? Um, what should I write here? 
do I need to write on the picture itself or is there a place to write? All of these different questions. Then there's the preparation for the task. So after this, you say, this is my model of the productive task, but, or you wouldn't say productive task to young people. You would probably say something like, here is my sea creature. Now let's, let's talk about yours. You need to choose a sea creature and you need to draw it and write about it. So in this sense, what the students need to do is they need to have pens, paper, uh, everything that they'll need to create their version of whatever it is you've just shown them. And then they get to work on that. And your job in this particular uh, point in the lesson is to monitor them and make sure everything's okay. And after that, we have the actual productive task itself. And that could be something as simple as a presentation of the poster. What might be more efficient is some kind of speed dating formation where students present their poster to multiple people and have the chance to talk about it. And then at the end, there's a review of the vocabulary. So something that consolidates everything that they have together. It could be a review of vocabulary, or it could be a review of the grammar they've looked at, or it could be a review of um, some of the mistakes that they've made while they were doing a productive task as well. You might have corrected some of them, but then you want to consolidate this for the whole class by asking them to look at some errors on the board and see if they can correct. Next up in your lesson plan will be the procedures, and that's just how the stages will go. We already touched on this slightly. Hello and names. So here you might want to clarify and say the class will sing a song and the teacher asks the names and writes them on the board. Just exactly what you were planning on doing. Not that bad. And for the revision, it could be something like a gallery walk with pictures of past vocabulary. So if you're using flashcards like those from the British Council, you can just take some sellotape, some scotch or some blue tack, whatever that you need, put the pictures up on the wall and then ask the children to go around with a piece of paper and write down what they can see. Feedback based on that. Fill in any blank spaces in their memory. And you've got your new vocabulary, and that's just a case of showing the flashcards. Here I see um, FCs, but that's just short for flashcards. Um, and then you can play a flashcard game. You can choose any flashcard game that you like. Um, it's a good idea to rotate the flashcard games that you play so the children don't get bored of um, anything that they're doing with the flashcards. Although some of them might have a favorite flashcard game, so you could ask them what they like and then. You can also have some control over how that happens too. Then in terms of the practice, it's just a case of the students writing on handwriting sheets. Um, you might want to mention the number of times they do it. Here I've said only twice um, because I teach quite young people and they get very bored of practicing their handwriting. The same thing is true of uh, a gap filling exercise. You might not want to give your teenage students lots and lots of gap fills to do. You might only want to give them five or six using phrasal verbs from the previous lesson and then ask them if they agree with the sentences they've just completed the gap fills for. After that, there's a model of the productive task. So here I've just clarified and said the teacher shows the model and the students ask the question. And then after that, the students draw and write about their task. Again, your procedures don't have to be incredibly detailed because this is just what the stage is. It's just describing what's happening. And in here, the students interview each other after the teacher shows them how. So it's important to stress in your plan that you've made this time for actually demonstrating how the task is going to go as well, especially for very young students because they have no idea what's happening and they need a frame of reference. And in the review of vocabulary here, I've just written the teacher gives the students a word search to do in pairs. So here the students can attempt to find things. Now, it might be worth mentioning in your procedures that you don't expect the students to produce full sentences, especially at lower levels or younger age groups, maybe just saying, ah, oh, there is, um, well, if you talk about sea creatures, there is whale, there is octopus. And that is absolutely fine as well. So 
know, making sure that it's clear um, what your expectations are for them to do this uh, in this part of the task as well is quite useful for them. So here are the here's the procedure and just like some general notation. Um, and this takes no time at all to write down. And you can see that there's the sort of logical sequence, one thing progresses to us. Then you have your interaction patterns. So have a look at some interaction patterns. Um, they basically just show how people operate in the room and it can be, it can take a form that's very simple. For me, it's just T equals teacher, S equals student, and S is students together in a group. M, T is teacher to class, uh, T, S is teacher to class, S to S is student to student, and S is with one after the other is students in a group. Now, why would you want to do any of this? It sounds very complicated. Well, it's good for um, several reasons, but the first and foremost is checking the balance of communication in the classroom. Um, if you see lots of T to S, then that means the lesson is very teacher-centered and perhaps the students don't have as much independence as you would like them to have or as much as your school would expect them to have. So if you see a lot of this, then you know that you need to change the nature of some of the procedures, maybe some of the stages, so that you can make it a more student-centered lesson or a lesson where the students are interacting in groups more often. Um, that is one uh, reason it can be a choice that's made by the teacher themselves, or it might be something that's actually expected by the institution you're in as well. So it can come from two places, but the end result is the same. And I think it's the most important. And it also shows that you've given some consideration to each stage of the task. Maybe some part of the task will be, uh, some part of the stage will be uh, teacher-centered and then we'll move to student-centered. So you've shown consideration of how the interaction is going to go. So there are no loose ends as well. There are no students that are without something to do. And you can see a nice example here. You can see parts where the um, lesson is teacher to student or um, teacher to the whole class, and then where the students work together, or it's just the teacher alone and the students. Um, and so you can see, this is just one part of an overall procedure that you'll see in greater detail in one of the documents that we've produced for this. But you can see what the balance is like um, this is the beginning of the procedure. So in fact, it's a little bit more teacher-centered, but as it progresses, then it should become more student-centered um, if that's the logic of where you're teaching or how you would like to teach. Those are the main parts, but there are some miscellaneous aspects as well. The first is your assumptions. So your assumptions are based on current information about what you, well, what you know about the students, what you know about the class, things they've studied before, things they like, and um, maybe things like lateness, for example. Then you've got problems and solutions. So you can ask, um, you can base your problems and solutions on whether your assumptions are uh, wrong or you can use a different framework. There are really three kinds of problems and solutions. Task problems, language problems and behavior problems. Task problems are issues the students might have with the task. Language problems are um, problems that the students might have with uh, the language that's required to complete the task. And behavior problems are just, well, how you plan to manage students' behavior. Then you have your materials, and this is more like um, a nice reminder for the teacher or um, a helpful list for the observers to what to expect to see in the lesson. It's good for teachers to have a list of materials um, in their plan, um, just so they remember the, the, the number they need to print, for example, or that they should have board pens of different colors on hand for different purposes. Um, so it's useful in this sense, but it's also useful for your observer to sort of work out where the different materials are going to come in. Then there's something called a timetable fit. Now, we talked about stages having a logical flow, but of course your lessons over the course of a year should have a logical flow as well. 
So this is a great way of making sure that you connect one lesson to the next um, and then you can establish that flow with the students with greater ease. And then there's just things like general admin, the names, not necessarily the students, but your name, the teacher's name, the dates, the school, what level you're um, teaching, and the number of students. Again, it's a helpful reminder for the number of materials, um, but it can also be useful if you prepare plans for each lesson just for yourself, then if you have the date on it, then you can identify what students did for um, quite easily in that sense. But some schools give their students lesson plans to write, and then the date is just useful for administrative purposes. So how will all of this actually look in a real lesson? Well, that's what's going to be the subject of our next video, putting everything together. But um, until then, if you want to know a bit more about planning lessons for students, um, I would refer you back to our old friend, Jane Moon, who wrote Children Learning English. Again, brilliant book for any kind of material that's connected to this. However, until next time, thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you in the next video. Bye-bye.